Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to recognize the killing of George Floyd on May 25, 2020, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, by police violence. The fight for equality is central to Hear Her Sports. We stand with the Black community and with every person who faces injustices and oppression because of the systematic racism in this country. We stand with those who are protesting the wrongful deaths of George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and others. Hear Her Sports will continue to give voice to women in sports, and in the months ahead will deepen our commitment to be a space for stories about racism, sexism, and any other forms of social injustice. In the show notes of today's episode, there are links to resources for learning and helping. I'll also add links to some of the past episodes featuring Black women, including last episode with Faith Dismuk, whose young adult novel Sprint Dreams was just released this week and is now available on Amazon. Welcome to Hear Her Sports. I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery. On today's show, joining me is Marinelle de Jesus, founder of Peak Explorations, a socially conscious trekking company. She is currently sort of stuck in Mongolia, which just extended its lockdown for another 30 days. She'll be there until July, if not longer, because there's rumor that the country doesn't plan to open the borders until a vaccine becomes available, which could be a really long time. Well, let's start. Today, joining me is Marinelle de Jesus, and she is a lawyer, writer, a public speaker, and a world traveler. She has led tours, most often high-altitude mountain trekking tours, to over 35 countries. In 2016, she launched Peak Explorations and Brown Gal Trekker with the mission to create inclusion for local Indigenous women in the trekking tourism industry as guides and porters worldwide. Marinelle's work has been published on HuffPost, Matador Network, Medium, Adventure Journal, WOMAG, Terra, Incognita, Hike Like a Woman, and many others. And she just completed We Are Nomads, a true story of an all-woman migration in Altay, her first documentary film made in collaboration with local Kazakhs. I'm so excited to have Marinelle on the podcast to talk about the new film, Women in Trekking Tourism Industry, and her vision of traveling in the future. Welcome, Marinelle. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Sure, of course. Well, let's start with where you are, because right this second, you're still in Mongolia. You're in the mountains where you filmed and edited We Are Nomads. Describe your situation. Yes, I'm in the western part of Mongolia uh, in the town called Ulgi. It's a gateway to the Altai Mountains, which is the prime destination for trekkers here in Mongolia. Basically, I'm surrounded by mountain peaks and blue skies, which Mongolia is known for. The landscape itself, you know, feels like Death Valley in a lot of ways, but there's a town made up of 30,000 people. It's a sleepy town. You know, I have cows outside my window and mm-hmm. you know, it's actually more cows than, than dogs, to be honest. So <laughs> it's quite interesting. They, they kind of come and look for trash and eat whatever, you know, they want. It's kind of fascinating. So I'm learning more about cows while I'm here. <laughs> Because I'm not really, you know, usually don't see cows unless you go to the countryside. It's a beautiful region of Mongolia. Once you get outside of Ulgi, the countryside is majestic. And that's that's where we filmed the We Are Nomads documentary. So it's nice. I mean, it's quiet. It's peaceful. I think, honestly, it's a perfect place to be during this time with the crisis. So it's not a bad deal for, on my end to be here. I, I mean, there's no issue with coronavirus here. As far as I know, Mongolia only has about... I think now it went up to 80 cases, but there are no deaths. They're mostly imported cases where Mongolians from outside the country want to come back to Mongolia. So they bring them back and then they come with coronavirus. So, uh, but it's, so it's very contained. And so where I am really, it's kind of, it feels like I'm in the middle of nowhere, to be honest. And so mm-hmm. this is the access point to the Altai Mountains, which is the prime uh, trekking destination in Mongolia. And what's your daily life like? You know, like, what are you eating and where are you shopping and things like that? Yeah, so I think my routine pretty much these days is just to go shop for food, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, I do hike around a little bit, but I think you need to have a car to go further. So on a daily basis, I just, you know, I basically have been taking care of myself a lot more now. I, I think because of the pandemic, I think everyone's kind of thinking about health these days. So I'm no exception. So I think this is a chance for me to kind of like, you know, figure out my diet, you know, kind of sort of sort out my meals. And, you know, you can buy everything here pretty much. There are vegetables and fruits. And the only thing actually is they don't have fish because they eat a lot of meat here, like lamb, beef, uh, you know, sheep uh, and all other kinds, except pork. You know, they're Muslim, mainly Muslim folks here. The Kazakhs are the the Muslim uh, people here in Mongolia. 
Um, so the diet is a bit different from what I'm used to because I eat a lot of fish. So that's something that's shifted a lot. But my routine really, to be honest, is I do a lot of writing and I've been busy with doing the filmmaking. So for the past 60 days, that's what I've been doing since I got into Mongolia, which is really mm -hmm. nice. Are you, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to use the word stuck, but are you stuck <laughs> in Mongolia? You know, I, yeah, I kind of use that word once in a while, but then I'm thinking I can't really use that word. It doesn't feel like I'm stuck, to be honest. It's, I mean, I feel like people will probably like roll their eyes on me like you're kind of like on vacation in a lot of ways you can treat it as sort of a break from but you know but I'm a nomad so my home really is not defined and so to me it's like where I am is home and you know it's not like I can think about U.S. and say oh yeah I'm going back there it's my home which I used to think so now my point of reference is really kind of screwed up to be honest it's more like wherever I am I don't call it being stuck. It's it's where I need to be, you know. And to be honest, it isn't a bad place to be to be in in terms of the pandemic. It does feel like a, a break from you know the routine because mm -hmm. it's it's a very slow paced kind of life. And in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of people probably get find find it a bit boring. But to me, it's uh, I take advantage of it because I get to do a lot of things that you know on the slower pace of things rather than always on the go. Right. We're going to talk about trekking a little bit later, but are you able to get out and walk in the mountains and whatnot every day or regularly? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been meaning to do a lot more running around the area. Uh, there are mountains, but I think they're further out. There is a, a mountain area here I, I go to whenever I want to feel like taking a break and having a view of the city, but I don't have a car. And I think, honestly, if I had a car, I'd be out every day. So I was actually kind of thinking maybe I should rent a car, but it's a bit expensive to, to rent a car here because I think I'm the only foreigner. So far, since I've been here for almost 80 days in Mongolia, I haven't met another foreigner. This is wow. the first, yeah, it's a world record for me. I have never been outside the U.S. ever in my life for 80 days. I have not seen a single foreigner besides me. Everyone. That's amazing. Before. Yeah. And so, um, so I think everyone's looking at me. There's a lot of different viewpoints of me being here, you know, because for one, they're fascinated, I think, how I managed to come here with the coronavirus. And then they're also kind of weary because I'm a foreigner. So, it's, you know, the, the, things have changed in the tourism industry. There's now a stigma and a little bit about, you know, being a foreigner. But, you know, it's been an experience, though, you know, being here and being stuck and redefining my identity as, a, as an expat or a, a tourist. One thing that you did mention that I think is super interesting is like with the pandemic and, you know, sort of increased interest in health, what is the word health actually going to mean? Since you mentioned it, what have your thoughts been? Well, my thought really, to me, honestly, is diet. Because, mm -hmm. you know, when you travel, it's hard sometimes to have good diet because you eat whatever and you're tired and you want coffee more than anything, which is not really good. So I, I'm, I mean, I'm an addict, to, you know, when it comes to coffee. So, you know, I started kind of become more interested in like, oh, I have more free time now I can cook. I actually rented an apartment now. I've been here for over a month, which helped a lot. I was living in a hotel for the first 30 days and that wasn't a good idea because I ended up eating easy meals that are easy to cook or I go to the restaurant. But now I'm like focused on cooking and I'm trying to see what the groceries they have, you know, what they have here, the markets. So I'm focused more on the food, really. I think healthy, you can easily just focus on food. And if you focus on food, that's like three times a day or two times a day that you have to like focus. That's a lot of, you know, effort, right? So right. there is no gym. I, I do try to stay active by walking around a lot. I don't have a car, which helps because I'm always walking every day. And then I do a little bit of workout indoors as well. I do basically like most everyone do probably go on YouTube and, and just do some sort of intensive training workout, you know, that kind of stuff online. But, I, you know, I do try to move as much as I can because I haven't been doing a lot of long distance trekking. Uh, unfortunately, I can't really do that here because I also want to be mindful that locals don't, they, I don't think they're comfortable right now for, for tourists to be running around here and, and sort of like, you know, normally just touring because they kind of in a lockdown, but not really. And if they find out that you're a tourist, they don't like the idea that you're on tour because they have a prohibition of public gatherings. Because if I go on a track, I would bring a guide and a crew with me. And they don't like that idea right now. So Right. right. Interesting. Yeah. Since we're talking about health and you're a nomad, do you go to doctors and how do you manage yeah. that? 
Basically, in Peru, which I'm based, I, I actually have a good dentist there now. I had root canal done, I mean, Cusco, and that was nerve wracking at first because of the language barrier for one. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. He's trying to explain and I'm trying to explain, but it worked out really well. You'd be surprised how good medical treatment is overseas and dental uh, treatment is. There's such thing as uh, medical tourism, and I think it's becoming a norm now where if it's too expensive in the U.S., people would actually go overseas, take a vacation and just get treated. As far as like checkups, I mean, I can certainly do that in Peru as well, which is not expensive at all. I'm, I no longer have health insurance, which was one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life because I've been so controlled in my mind to always have an insurance for everything. And that's part of me being someone from the U.S. that I have to basically drop off my mindset and sort of be comfortable with a new kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it's been working so far, you know, like I, I mean, Cusco, Peru has, has a lot of good doctors and dentists. Actually, my last physical was in the Philippines a year ago because I happened to be there and my brother's a doctor, so it's very convenient. Right. So, so actually, ideally, if I could go to the Philippines once a year for my, my checkup, that would be <laughs> ideal. So, um, that's my aim. I actually was going to go to Philippines, but, you know, pandemic right. came, but I'm still nearby. So maybe if I can hop over before I go back to Peru, then I'll do my, you know, yearly. <laughs> so that's kind of how I deal with it. I mean, you kind of have to time it like May is my yearly annual thing. So I think about, oh, Asia, maybe I'll go there, you know, visit my dad. You know, <laughs> And then I, I get my haircut there too, because I love the, I love a salon over there near my brother's house. I mean, but you know, if it doesn't happen, I, I do it wherever I can, I suppose, you know, and then that's the thing about being a nomad. You cannot be attached to one thing. You need to a lot of flexibility because otherwise you're going to stress out. Right, right. That's interesting. To be honest, all over the world, there are decent medical and dental cares. As far as I'm concerned, you know, my experience, I, I haven't really had a bad experience. Yeah. I mean, I think in America, we think that we're the only people that know about medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So how often are you in Peru? I actually was based there. Well, I'm still am. I moved my everything. I basically got rid of everything, my house, my car, my possessions, my career back in Washington, D.C. I started it slowly. And then eventually in February 2019 was officially my move to Peru because I got an apartment there. And I moved my two cats, my 15-year-old cats moved to Peru. Wow. So I promised myself I'll, I haven't ever leave them behind. You know, just because you change your lifestyle doesn't mean you just give up your pets. So I always felt like this has been a long-term relationship that I've had with them. And I want to see it through, you know. So I had to do a lot of research on that. I was, And it was expensive. I, I'm hoping this would be the last move for them. And, and this, <laughs> this is their retirement. <laughs> right. I will never travel with them again. They're 15. So, you know. Cats that are old, they don't really, that's just too much for them. Right. We're actually in Peru right now, which is the only downside for me. I, I miss them a lot. You know, they're my little kids. So, um, but, uh, but you know, they're healthy, which is, they love Peru. Once we got to my apartment, their energy level zoomed up. Like, like all of a sudden they were reborn. They're sort of like, mm. again, I don't know. I think there's such thing as nature and the energy in the sacred valley where I am. The Andes is outside my window. The Andes wow. range. So they picked up on it the way I have picked up how much I love that place. And so even animals can, can tell, you know, if it's a nice environment. Well, let's get to the film. Sure. Talk about We Are Nomads and what it was like making your first film. Well, I, actually, it's kind of like unplanned. I mean, I was already doing some shooting for KM82 in Peru, which is a very controversial more investigative journalism, and I hired a director to do it with me. So I wasn't doing a lot more hands-on filming. I'm more writing, and I'm more sort of, you know, semi-directed, but not really because I don't have much experience with it. You know, I write stories, and, you know, I write for magazines. So that's where my experience comes from for storytelling. When I came to Mongolia, I'm supposed to lead an all-women migration group. I had clients through my organization coming to do the first ever all-women-led migration with a Kazakh woman. Well, no, pandemic happened, so no more trip. <laughs> so I got stuck. By the time I figured out all the logistics for my business and, and like what we were going to do with that trip with my clients, the, the borders shut down. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm here. And, you know, what am I going to do? You know, like I, my plan was to do this migration and go back to Peru. The women who I met them before, I met them actually once I arrived in Ulgi. They were very nice. They were so excited about the migration. 
And I felt like I'm going to disappoint them if, if at least we don't give it a shot and go, even if it's just me. And so I decided, you know, what the heck, I'm just going to go. But then I also thought I would have loved to film it, you know, because my, my goal in the beginning was to actually just bring someone to do some videos, but not really do a full documentary. But I learned a lot more about the, the culture and the women. I learned something fascinating about the nomadic woman here that not a lot of people know. And so I decided, you know what, I think this is a really awesome story that needs to be told. And I realized the only best way to do this is to do a documentary because it's such a beautiful story and a beautiful background about their history. So mm -hmm. that's how we came to be. But the problem was I'm in Ulgi, I don't have any equipment. I don't have, I'm not an experienced filmmaker. So I have to resort to local production team. That was an adventure in and of itself. At first I told myself, if I'm going to do this, people are only going to watch a film if it's like good quality. If you don't have good gear, then forget it. And Ulki doesn't have a lot of filmmakers. Actually, they don't have filmmakers. They only have people who get hired by, by people for weddings and parties. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, don't think this is Hollywood, you know? So my idea of actually doing a documentary here without a crew is kind of insane. Because, like, I, I mean, so I thought this is hilarious. I'm going to probably, so I'm going to, I started researching. So I thought maybe I'll see where this goes. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, I found a guy who went to film school. He did some training with filming, but he does, you know, because it's all, you no know, one really wants to do any kind of documentary. They do more like just, you know, personal, you know, stuff, right? Like family gatherings. Mm -hmm. So because everything kind of came together and it seemed like it was going to work, I went for it. And so we did the filming. Um, we did uh, a number of days in the mountains filming. And it, it is an actual migration. We actually really did the actual migration. So it, it was amazing. Can you describe what exactly is the migration? Yeah. So, you know, the people here are, well, there are 3 million people in Mongolia. There's a different types of groups, ethnic groups. And the, where I am, uh, I'm surrounded by basically majority of them are Kazakh people. And so they're nomads as well. They migrated from Kazakhstan, from that region so a long time ago. So even to this day, they still do migration. Migration really comes in the form of animal herding. So here, the reason why they still do migration is because they need to make sure their animals eat. So from pasture to another pasture, because wintertime, you know, it gets dried up in where they're living. So they have to go further lower where it's warmer and there's grass and food for the animals. So with animals, they usually have sheep, goats that they herd, cows, um, yaks, horses. And of course, they have their eagles because most of them are also eagle hunters. Eagle, they do eagle hunting. So that's really the nature of migration in this part of the world where it is for the purpose of feeding your animals, finding better land, better pasture for the animals. Otherwise, there's no reason to move. And the herding is really their main source of income and food. So even to this day, there are still 100% full-time nomads living in the mountains of Mongolia. But of course, it's much lesser than before because of the right. technology. You know, as you can imagine, everyone has, a lot of people have now moved to uh, Ulgi to, to the towns because it's more convenient and easier life, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, actually being a nomad is such a hard life. It's, it's very busy with animals. So I think coming to the city, it's actually much quieter and, and much slower and, and can be even boring for them. So yeah, rural life is not easy. No, no. I, that's one thing I really learned. I thought I was going to go there and sit and do nothing. You know? And the nomads are working all day. And I feel like, do I need to do anything? Can I help them? But I'm like, I'm not even qualified to hurt any of the animals. I might just get hurt or hurt the animals myself. You know? So um, it's, it's actually fascinating. Uh, you know, I was talking to actually a friend of mine today, and I said, you know, one of the women in the film, her name is Wanar, and I interviewed her, and she is one of the stories everyone's going to learn about. And she's, like, in her 50s, and, man, she, like, moves like she's only in her 20s. I mean, she's working from sunrise to sunset. She works all day, household chores as well as animal herding uh, responsibilities and, and all other things outdoors that they do. Wow, yeah. Well, what are your goals for the film? What's next? I want to just be able to distribute it widely as much as possible. You know, the documentary, you don't really, 
I feel like I just all I want is to be able to share their stories because it's such an amazing story that they have that hasn't been told. And, you know, and I feel honored to actually be able to share their stories and they actually open up to me. I mean, this is part of me, uh, sort of my brand and how I run my enterprise is that I do filmmaking because it's a way for me to create change in an industry. So the reason why I want to distribute it widely is because I want to educate people about the role of women in the adventure space, that our stories are not being told as much. It's missing. And even my own story is not normal. You know, it's not common that you hear someone like me who owns a trekking company. And, and this space is very male dominated. So as you can imagine, it goes from the industry to, to media, to storytelling, to filmmaking. When I look at all those aspects that I went through the past year, it's hard being a woman in all these fields because there's an isolating feeling being a woman in, in where I am. And when I met the women nomads, I felt so liberated. Like I felt like I finally found somehow my place. They gave me that sense of place. When I did the KM82, I worked with a lot of porters in Inca Trail and you know, there's like hundreds and hundreds of men and only maybe 10, 12 women. And it was overwhelmingly male dominated. And I, I actually experienced a lot of sexism from doing that film. By the time I came to Mongolia, I've had enough of it. So, I mean, to, to be frank, like, like, I guess, you know, in fact, it gave me a lot of perspective about the experience of a woman in America and US versus being in other countries. That how could I have just taken for granted how much more equality we have as women in U.S. versus some countries. And I actually experienced that firsthand, right. you know, culturally even, that it's acceptable in Peru for a man to put you down and embarrass you in front of everyone. That's okay. Mm. So, yeah. How would you like to see diversity improve in the outdoor industry, in trekking or any other areas that you've experienced? I want people in the industry, whether you're a company owner or a guide or a porter or whatever, to be just more mindful and conscious of the fact that that we haven't welcomed a lot of different types of people in this industry yet. Like we haven't created a welcoming type of atmosphere. It's been lacking for so long. And, and one example is being a woman, you know, a woman porter, a woman guide. I met so many women porters and women guides, and I talked to them a lot since I've started my company. Even before that, I, I did my research, and this is how I ended up focusing on this as an issue. From all my conversations with women guides and porters and operators and, and even the women nomads here, there's always that feeling that you are just not completely welcome in this space. You know, it's not supported. It's not welcoming. It's changing, though. I have to say it's changing, but very slowly. I feel like there's still a lot of breakthrough that needs to be happening. And I'm just hoping that men and women will become more in tune with the fact that the industry, the way it is being run is not okay, that we need to create more supportive spaces for women entrepreneurs, for women guides, for women porters. For example, I guess a very concrete example in my mind right now, Kilimanjaro women porters and guides. I am focusing on some issues on the porters with women, the women porters specifically in Kilimanjaro. One of the concerns is that there's still a lot of incidents of sexual harassment, whether it's subtle or whether it's egregious and blunt and very uh, direct. There's all forms of different harassment towards the local women porters. I'm thinking, why haven't we created a culture in that industry where it's safe for them? And that's the thing that I wanna change. And, you know, and the harassment is coming from all over. It's not just men porters or male porters. It's also the male guys. It can also be the male tourists, you know? So all I want is really to, to basically look at these issues and sort of make it better, basically. Come up with best practices for the industry. Because I don't think it's right for us to include women in an industry like this and say, yay, this is cool. The women are part of it and not address the challenges they're going to face as a woman. So we need to fix that too, before we even celebrate the idea of including women in an industry. And that's really my concern as a woman here in this field is that I wish that there would be more of that sort of alleviation of those problems, because if we can do that, then more women will come forward. More women will actually join the industry. 
but right now it's quite intimidating and it's very hard to find resources and support. What do the women guides and women porters offer to the community? Like, why do you see that they're important? Well, I, I think it's just important for a lot of reasons. You know, it's kind of like a, a empowerment. It goes both ways. You know, a lot of women appreciate having women in the trail because they feel safer as well. I mean, in Nepal, an agency there that's women-led started because there were complaints about women, you know, falling into dangerous situations because they were around male guides and they were just alone in the mountains. So there's now a phenomenon where uh, there's just a few of them, agencies run by women, for women, for that reason. These are real problems for women. So this is a benefit for a lot of women. I also have male clients who also appreciate having women as guides and porters. The women are very good as leaders, and this is something we don't appreciate so much in this industry. I think when we think about hiking and trekking, we think about someone physically strong, you know, we imagine it's more of a masculine kind of energy. And that's really what we're brainwashed to think. But actually what I'm learning, because I have a company, I do research on what makes someone a good guide, whether it's a man or woman, it's the leadership. And women are good as leaders because they negotiate and they're intuitive. And I have to be honest, I've been on tracks where I would have men guides and women guides, I see a major difference in the approach. And sometimes I, you know, sometimes you, you do have great men guides, you know, they have the ability, the intuition and all that. But women have this much more naturally. I, I notice it a lot more that it comes much more naturally for them. And it's great because you're able to negotiate certain situations without having the ego be a problem because I've had uh, a real experience where there was a male guide and sometimes there's a clash with the clients because they want to make decisions and they don't want to hear anyone else's input, even the right. clients. That's ego. So <laughs> and then I would have a woman guide and, and, and that almost the same scenario where, oh, we got a situation here. I noticed the woman listened more to the clients. And that's something I've been seeing as a pattern. You know, of course, there are men who are also good at that, but I, I'm just noting what I've seen. You know, it, it, there is a pattern with women to become better negotiators. Their approach is different versus some of the men that I've experienced. So I think women have something to offer in this industry. They have amazing leadership skills. They're mentally strong as well, even sometimes even more so than a man. You know, the ability to listen to the clients and be empathetic is such a good quality. Because to be honest, as a guide and a porter, you're kind of like a mother in you know, a lot of ways. There's the risk factor where you have to be a bit more like stepping up as a leader, but that's also a motherly, you know, that could also be a motherly quality. You know, you have to be taking care and protective of your group, of your members. Right. And so right. to me, honestly, I feel like there's the motherly quality in guides that I think is amazingly, you know, that's something you, you really just see naturally with women and that's a benefit. And we haven't really seen much of the benefit because there's not a lot of women yet in the industry. Right, right. I think I think this is all kind of new to many people. Like, oh, okay, I never really realized that women can offer that. But they can. It hasn't been the norm yet because we're so used to the same type of leadership that most men will exemplify, right? So for a woman to step up to the plate, it is kind of brand new for most people, you know, and we definitely trust and believe that it is going to be a beneficial to the industry. And also it's for sustainability for the industry as well to have women in it. It's part of the idea of sustainability and equity. And women in Peru, for example, there's a lot of domestic violence. So when you include women in the equation, you're also helping them to become more independent and to empower them to take care of their family without having to rely on a man. If it's an abusive situation, they can safely get out of it. So there is a social benefit. And I think this is the part where I think this is important because as a tourist, we should also think about what we give back to the community when we travel. And this is exactly what you would be giving back if you hire a woman as guide and porter. You're giving back a better quality lifestyle and family life for the women and their kids. And to me, that's something that, you know, that we need to cultivate in the industry. I'm always thinking about the way to give back to the community. Sometimes it doesn't have to be a social project. Sometimes it's just through employment and hiring women who haven't been hired for so long. And then that changes everything. Their dynamic and their life changes as well. And that's the impact that we're creating for them personally. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I want to ask about how can you be a good tourist? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like 
maybe talk about it in general, but also if you want to talk about it now that we are experiencing the pandemic, yeah. if that has changed. Yeah, I think it's an amazing, interesting time for tourism industry. I, I have been I've been trying to sit down after the film is done that I wanted to sit down and reflect on the tourism industry and how it's going to change the way we travel as tourists. I mean, I have to confess, I don't think I've been a very good tourist in my younger years, you know, and I think a lot of the lessons I'm going to share with everyone, they're coming from my background of being pretty much not a very mindful tourist of, you know, in terms of just being responsible and ethical. I think one thing that tourists need to know is that, you know, everything starts with whoever you contract with in terms of the service. You need to really do research if you really want to understand whether who you're contracting is ethical. You really need to, to do your re own research and not just rely on the marketing that they give you. And when I say marketing, the probably last thing I would rely upon is the website and the things that they tell you on their page. The thing I'm learning is that there is a dark side to the industry. Not everything that they tell you is true. And that's what I learned from KM82, filming the border exploitation and abuses on Camino Inca and Inca Trail. I think one of the challenges is that tourists don't have information handy and they have to do research and that takes a lot of time and everyone's busy. So I think one solution really is that we have to make sure that the information is easy to get. And that's the reason why I actually started the nonprofit, the Porter Voice Collective, for that reason, because in the trekking tourism industry in Nepal, Peru, and Tanzania, there are people who are wondering whether, you know, porters are being treated fairly and humanely. And people have a hunch that there may be, you know, certain things that we don't know about the industry. And so that website is for the purpose of educating tourists so they know what to look for, what questions to ask companies. And, you know, how do we just be better in terms of their research and um, understanding how to help the borders in terms of changing the industry? So I think to answer the question of how to become a better tourist, it's such a complicated issue because in order to become a better tourist, it's almost as if you need to know what's going behind closed doors and what's going oh, on. Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? Like, in order to become a better tourist, you need to understand the problem first so that you become a problem solver as a tourist, right? Of course, you always see all these marketing schemes where they say, oh, yeah, we're ecotourism. Oh, yeah, we're for uh, the humane treatment of porters. But one thing I'm learning because now I'm in the industry is that it always leads me to a dead end when I do my research that it turns out it's not what it seems. You know, what you see on the paper isn't the reality. This is exactly why I started the KMA2 documentaries, because I wanted to know the truth. So as I think the best advice I have for, for tourists is that you really just have to dig deeper into it. And the deeper you get, the worse you might find yourself, you know, like the information you get, but you're going to find the truth. And if you find the truth, then you're going to figure out the solution. As to other aspects of the, of the tourism industry, there's a lot more to be sort of unraveled. I think this is one of the last frontier when it comes to just, just, it's a big industry. There's a lot of money and I feel like the industry still runs as if we're back in, you know, decades ago. Like it's kind of outdated the way their business models are. It's what do you mean? Um, for example, like, you know, a lot of the way it's run, I mean, I, I guess the way, the best way I can describe it is the notion of decolonizing the industry. To me, that comes into mind a lot because I feel, mm -hmm. I feel like it's kind of like the last frontier where there's still a level of colonialism attached to the trekking industry and the tourism industry overall. It's still based on the paradigm of a foreigner or an entity overseas who's got privilege and got the wealth that come over to a country in Africa or Asia and they hire people locally, but they're not fairly paid. It gets to a level of exploitation. So the power and dynamics, there's so much imbalance in it where you're not really giving back to the local people. You're just using them for your own self-interest. It's not an equal partnership. I think that's what mm -hmm. it is. You know what I mean? So this is a very outdated colonial mentality where it's almost like, you know, how back in times where people mine, mine gold, they go out and travel to find gold and minerals and they go, they look for spices. It feels that way to me sometimes being in this industry. It's like, it's like I, I find out, oh, the tourism is starting to boom here. And you find out who's involved and who's got the power and the leverage and which company has the most profit you realize it's a company coming from Australia or Europe 
or UK and, and they have a monopoly. So it's changing a little bit more, but for local people, it's hard for them to compete with, with that kind of scenario. I think it goes to the question of how do we change this industry so that it serves the local people more than it serves foreign people who are running the business. Right. What are you doing with your own company? Because I know that your company, Peak Exploration, is mission-driven, it seems. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, so that's the thing. I'm always sort of reinventing some of the things that I do with my company, depending on what I find, because... When I first started in 2016, I was part-time and I became full-time in 2017 and I had more time to research. The more research I do, the more my model changes in terms of my business. And I think that's okay. I think I, think I shouldn't, you know, because people kind of look like, oh, that's insane that you're always kind of shifting things. But it's good because I'm adapting to what I really know and what I find out is the truth from my investigation. So, for example, for me, I still partner with people locally when it comes to Peru because... You know, really, the it depends on their laws in terms of licensing and, and all that stuff, in terms of permits for tracks. Sometimes it has to be driven by local people. And I also don't want to start my own sort of licensing, like my own company in Peru, because I don't want to take over. I'm being mindful of trying to support local uh, entities as a partner. So how I do it is really I try to, like the inclusion of women, that's one example of a project that I have to make the industry better. The Porter Voice Collective is a project that I have to make it better because it gives back to the porters themselves and uh, empowers them. And, you know, I talked to the porters in Peru about potentially helping them with an idea of running an agency run by porters themselves, you know, a porter-led type of trekking agency. So that, to me, is the way to kind of go back to the community. Is The way to do that is to really listen to their voices. What do they want? How do they want this industry to look like? So that's what I do with my organization. I listen to the locals. I create a relationship with them. Sometimes it's not necessarily a working relationship. Sometimes it's more of an investigative type thing. They understand I'm trying to understand the industry. And then I give them a forum through Porter Voice Collective to speak up. But you know, one thing I'm learning is the big companies become out of touch because they don't, they don't go over to the country to do research. Mm. They start their business, they put the packages together and they leave and they hire someone locally as a manager, but the manager only does office work, right? It's not like they're going to do investigations. So they don't really monitor how the business is being run, whether it's equitable and all their workforce uh, folks are being treated well. They don't do all that kind of research. And I think that's one thing I want to advocate for companies is that they need to start being more attentive to what they're doing in those countries to see if what they're doing is ethical and you know it's not offending the locals in any kind of way or hurting right. them right so that's what i do with my company what do you imagine your trips are going to be like going forward and when do you imagine starting up again i think that uh i mean that's a good question i i, I was at first thinking oh yeah it's going to just you know maybe it's going to just take a few months but I think it's going to take a while for the industry to come back to normal. So I, I think people may have a mind shift about the whole industry as well. I'm hoping that they'll be more mindful of like what they do in terms of travel. Like maybe they'd be more responsible and more conscious of their impact on the environment and the people. As to when this is going to happen, honestly, I, I can't really say. I, I think we're going to have to see how, how everything goes with the airlines and the, the, you know, just the tourism industry as a whole. Um, if we're lucky, if we can at least have something going by 2021. Mm -hmm. you know, I think yeah. the rest of the year, to be honest, even if we open up the countries, who would really want to travel? You know, um, a lot of people also have income issues now, you know, with people losing their jobs. So there's going to be less tourists, obviously, because of money. Uh, right. So to be honest with you, uh, my my sort of expectation is that 2020 is just going to be a uh, kind of like a, an exception to the, to the norm. And, <laughs> and we're, we're going to just, for, we're, it's not a non-tourist uh, tourism kind of year, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm even going to be shocked if one or two people sign up for trips this year, to be honest. The pandemic, I don't, you know, we don't know much about it yet. That's the other problem, right? Right, right. Why trekking? Why were you interested in starting a trekking company? Uh, it really came from just me loving it. I started maybe discovering it when I first started becoming a lawyer in BC when I started practicing. 
And I found it to be the most effective way to heal over anything, actually, like grief or loss. At a point that I discovered it, I um, I actually went through sort of a, uh, a sort of a depression. That, well, I've had depression when I was younger, when I was a teenager, and then it kind of went on and off, just like, you know, like we know about depression, it just sometimes it fades, sometimes it comes back. So for me, for a long time, I actually had to do therapy and I, and I did child abuse and neglect kind of practice. So that was a very, very difficult practice to do. So that didn't really help as much in terms of my mental state. I realized I needed an outlet and that's when I discovered hiking. And I think that was the only thing for me, to be honest, that, that really calmed my mind and finally gave me sort of, it felt like a natural healing mechanism. You know, it's a natural healing method for for any kind of mental state, mental issues that you have, you know, and mental challenges that you have. And so since then, I just never stopped doing it. You know, it became just part of my life. So I decided I wanted to do the trekking company because doing it means I'm always going to have trekking in my life. <laughs> so right. <laughs> it's really sort of a personal motive. Like it's really one of those cliche thing that whatever you love to do, you want to turn it into a job. And I did exactly that. I didn't know how I was going to pull it off in the beginning. But when you love something so much, you just go for it. You actually try to believe or, you know, fake it till you make it, believe that it's going to work out. And it did, you know? Right, right. So, so that's all I banked on. I invested on the idea that I'm going to pretend in my head, I'll tell myself, I'll figure out how I'm going to make it work, but I am going to just trek. That's all I want to do. And I'm going to do a trekking company. And you're a real lover of solo travel and you recommend it to others a lot. I do. But I do want to have a caveat that, you know, solo traveling also is not for everyone. I also recognize that. But for those who are curious, I would definitely recommend it because the best uh, solo travel I did was for one year and it was the longest when, when I was, well, I guess now I'm doing it full time. But before this nomad life, I, I went away for one year from my job as a, sort of a sabbatical break and uh, it changed my life completely. I think it just gave a lot of clarity and all the questions I had about my life, I found answers just by being by myself and traveling solo facilitated that atmosphere to, to get clarity for me. So I recommend it because it gave me a lot of benefits. And, you know, if it added a lot to my life, then I, I would at least tell people, give it a shot. If you hate it, then don't do, don't do it again. But if, you know, if for some reason you're curious, I think it's a good way to sort of get to know yourself better. The traveling that we've been talking about so far is, at least I'm envisioning, you know, you get on a plane and you go to this sort of, I mean, not necessarily exotic, but sort of far out place. And I mean, and I'm thinking again of the pandemic and changes we're going to see in the industry. Do you think there's a way to get whatever you get by trekking, by doing one of your kinds of trips without making that gigantic leap on a plane and going to some foreign country and, you know, dealing with a lot of the issues that we've been talking about? Yes, actually. I mean, U.S. has a lot of beautiful hiking trails. I haven't even explored fully the entire country. So if I'm stuck in U.S., I would just go on a car and just drive and do hiking there. I honestly believe that, you know, and I think this is coming from my nomad viewpoint and being a nomad for a few years now, is that every country has something to offer. And don't get me wrong. like I think people probably think, oh, my God, Maryland's just in an exotic place. Oh, it's so boring in U.S. Since I've been away from U.S., I actually started appreciating U.S. more and thinking to myself, U.S. has beautiful landscapes and has amazing trekking destinations. There is no such thing as Grand Canyon anywhere else in the world, for example. And I still dream about Grand Canyon, thinking to myself, wow, you know, that's in US. You know, I mean, that you don't have to go so far. And it is world-class. I'm gonna tell you that, I mean, I'll tell everyone that it's world-class. So, so I guess my point is that sometimes it's easy for us to kind of take things for granted where we are, when in fact, we are somewhere where people are just so jealous, you know, about that they want to be where you are, you know, like people probably think, oh, I want to be in Mongolia. But I'm thinking, you know, Mongolia is cool, you know, but hey, if you invite me to go to Grand Canyon right now, I'd go, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to be like snubbing one place over another, because I think what I learned from my nomadic journey is, man, Earth is beautiful and it could be anywhere in the world, to be honest. So. I think you should definitely 
research your own backyard, your own country. Unless you've done everything in U.S., then okay, then maybe that's a different conversation. <laughs> but but if you haven't, you're not missing out. You should explore the U.S. You should. So yeah. So yes, definitely. The answer is yes. Definitely, you can do whatever I do in U.S. Wherever you are, in any other country, there's always something beautiful to appreciate. To be honest. Well, let's get back to the mountains. And could you describe what it's like to be on one of your trips? You know, like what what is it like to be out there on your own for two weeks of of walking around? Well, I mean, the treks that I have for people usually is small groups. I mean, that's one thing I never, I hardly do big groups. Sometimes I make exceptions. The last trip I had was Patagonia. We did the full circuit in January in Chile before the pandemic blew up. You know, it was basically a group of backpackers. That's a more advanced level because people had to have experience uh, backpacking before they join. It varies a lot for my organization. If you want to do uh, Peru, you can do Inca Trail. You can do an easier track, which is only two, three days. There's also a longer term track, which is Waiwash Trek, which is high altitude. And that's harder. Africa, of course, which is Kilimanjaro, would be very difficult. So it's more advanced. So it varies a lot, but it is really an adventure and it pretty much disconnects you from your reality. And it's a vacation adventure type thing. It's not just a vacation where you're relaxing, you're actually working your body, which is a good thing because you're being active and it's healthy for you. So that's really in a nutshell how those trips are. And and in my own time, I do the same thing, to be honest. I mean, when I did the migration, it was hiking, just without the group and more local people. I do a lot of solo trekking as well. I did the John Muir Trail in 2018 for 24 days solo. Uh, I was going to do a little bit more solo traveling in Nepal, you know, this year, but because of the pandemic, I can't do it. For someone who's never done a solo trek like your John Muir Trail, like what, what happens to your thought process or like what happens during that time? Oh, it changes a lot. I think the thought process turns into silence a lot of the days that I was on the trail. And that's beautiful. Like, before that, my brain was running like crazy, you know, uh, your regular life, you know, typically you're thinking about what you're going to do that day and you're thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow and your plans. Once you're on the trail, when I did JMT, I knew exactly where I needed to be at by the end of the day. Everything I needed was on my pack. So I didn't have to think much about anything like planning and and to be honest with you, the best days are the ones where I totally, completely just submit to silence and thinking nothing. It's meditation. So that's the transformation that I notice when you're solo and you're doing trekking. It does have a lot of that effect on me personally. And I think most people will agree if they've done solo trekking that it comes to a point when you're alone on a trail and for a long period of time that you just all of a sudden, you know, don't think nothing. You don't think anything, but you just kind of just listen to the birds and listen to the surroundings. And that's all you have in your mind. And it's beautiful. It's a very relaxing experience to be had. So I think I recommend that if people would want to do some solo hiking. And how many hours were you hiking? And then what would happen when you stopped? I mean, it depends on people how they want to do it. But for me, I did it for 23 days. I started from Whitney all the way to Yosemite. And it's 220-something miles. And I think for me, in the beginning, I averaged like a bit shorter mileage because it was it was the beginning phase and a lot of uh, passes. So in the beginning, I was maybe averaging six, six hours of biking. And then towards the end, because I was more used to it, I started doing more eight, nine, ten, even 10. Even oh, yeah. I think there was a long day, too, where I walked for 11, 12 hours outside because I was already used to it, right? So, sure, sure. The best thing is just you you listen to your body. Your body will tell you when it, it's had enough, you know, and sometimes it would just tell you, keep going. I just like walking, just keep going. So, yeah. Right. Well, we're, we're wrapping things up, but beforehand, as a short bonus for young listeners, do you have any thoughts or advice for them? A lot of people kind of wonder about my lifestyle being a nomad and how I got here. And I always just tell people that it all starts with, with your own voice, your inner voice. How I got here was just listening to myself, to be honest, like to listen to what you want, your desires. And a lot of people, when I was younger, I always consulted with everyone. I was the type of person who wanted opinion from everybody and did investigation and did research. And then I think I realized the only way I really got here 
to this lifestyle was because I finally listened to what I wanted. And one day I just asked myself the question, not ask questions of others, but question myself. And that's when I really found out the, the honest truth of what I really want in life. Like, for example, I asked my question if I wanted to get married or I want to have kids. Once I asked those questions, it took me to the truth of my own truth of what my life should look like. So I would advise people to take a break from the external factors and the external environment as much as you can, if you can. And if you're worried about what path you want to take in life, just sit down and ask yourself that question. And that's really what I would like people to kind of take on as an advice, because a lot of the questions we have in our lives and the problems that we're trying to solve, most of the time we already have the answers. We just need to sit down and listen to them. I think that's great. And it's not easy. It isn't. It is. It's just kind of a discipline almost because, you know, you know it, we're, we're trained from, from, you know, as kids to always ask for help, to, to look, to follow what everyone is doing, right? Like sort of a model, like, oh, okay, if he does it, then I should do it that way. But we are afraid sometimes to go inner, inside ourselves. It can be scary. I mean, it is, it is scary, actually, <laughs> because I think the reason why is because it's the truth. The truth is inside of us. It's not outside. It's actually within us. So, but you know, I think it's worth it, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for, you know, giving me a chance to share and let people know about the trekking industry. So, yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Yep. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. And that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Sign up for a newsletter at hearhersports.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hear Her Sports. Our design is by Agnes Studio and music by the band Goldmines. Stay healthy and safe. Till next time, bye-bye. should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.